Welcome to Saturday Night the Movies, the podcast that celebrates classic, current, and cult films. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury, and we're on the Lock 22 Network. Here it's always Saturday night, and I'm pleased to welcome our guests, two of the stars of the controversial 1972 film, The Last House on the Left, a film which marked the directing debut of horror maestro Wes Craven. Helping us celebrate the 50th anniversary of this dark and disturbing film, let's welcome Jeremy Rain and Mark Scheffler. Hi, guys. Hi. So you have to excuse me. Um, this is the first time I've done a podcast with two people um, in a while. So uh, feel free to talk over one another. Uh, I think the energy will be there. Uh, I'll try to keep it organized. <laughs> Uh, but we'll, we'll, we'll go uh, one at a time if, on specific questions. I actually wanted to start with you, Jeremy. Okay. And I'll ask Mark the same question. Um, we talk a lot, we're all about movies, past, present, future. When you were a little kid, did you grow up in a family that liked to go to the movies? Was, were movies a thing for you? I love to go to the movies, but we didn't go very often. And it seems like they only took me to uh, movies that like we went to see Old Yeller and I cried and cried and cried so hard. My older brother beat me up in the theater. Um, We went to see The Nun's Story and I cried again so hard that my brother wanted to beat me up in the theater. Then my brother took me to see the The Haunted House on the Hill. Is that oh, the name the, uh, uh, House on Haunted Hill. House on Haunted Hill. And this was in Charleston, West Virginia. And they had a, a, a skeleton that came sliding out on a string halfway through the thing. And I was a kid that scared the life out of me. I think I saw uh, Sound of Music. And that was about it. We didn't go. Well, the, the skeleton was part of William Castle, the, uh, the producer's tricks he, he he was known for creating little tricks like he had a movie called the tingler where he <laughs> actually put electric buzzers yeah. on all the seats yep 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 did they also do smell like some smell or stink came out oh uh, well there was smell of vision i'm not sure if it was him but i remember me uh in i think in 1960 he did a movie called 13 ghosts where um <laughs> where you could only see the ghosts if you wore the glasses. Usually it was for 3D purposes, but in this movie, if you wanted to see the ghosts, you had to put on the glasses, which was pretty goofy. Um, what about you, Mark? What do you, what do you remember from your earliest movie-going uh, experiences? Well, I, I lived in a bit of a bubble. Um, my father's a cousin was the general manager of all the Stanley Warner theaters in the greater Pittsburgh, Ohio, West Virginia area. And we went to all of them as family, right? So, you know, we were in the movies all the time. Uh, and, And in the neighborhood where I lived, uh, uh, there was a theater called the Manor Theater. And every Saturday afternoon, had uh, 17 cartoons and a double feature, usually a Western and a science fiction movie, uh, you know, Gunfight at the OK Crab, 2,100 miles from here. Uh, and, and 
And, uh, you know, I spent an extra, and I was a latchkey kid. So I, I spent an extraordinary amount of time uh, going to the movies, uh, either with my father, who I, I lived with alone, and, uh, or by myself. Did that answer your question? Oh, yeah. And in L.A., we had the Stanley Warner uh, theaters as well. So they are obviously a nationwide chain. Now, you said you have West Virginia. So you um, you have a tiny link there to Jeremy from Charleston, West Virginia. Um, very tiny. I didn't spend much time in West Virginia, except to, to uh, uh, go to racetrack and to drink 3-2 beer when I was in high school. <laughs> it links you to Charles Manson. He's from there. What's that, Jeremy? That was Jeremy saying that Charles Manson was from Charleston? Yep. Now, I was reading up on you a little bit in some of your background. It actually said that you hitched a ride with Charles Manson once. Is that true? Yes, I am such a good judge of character. <laughs> Well, tell us a little bit about that before we get into a discussion of this movie. <laughs> I was in Hollywood staying at my great aunt's house and I wanted to see LA. So I walked, I didn't have a car. I walked as far as I could down sunset and then my feet hurt too much to walk back. So I decided to hitchhike back and I saw two guys hitchhiking. No one was picking them up. So I stood in front of them with my, my halter lace top and lace bell bottom pants because I was a hippie and Tex Watson and, and Charles Manson picked, they stopped and picked all three of us up. And I thought they were great guys and they had their guitars. We took those guys to where they wanted to go. And then they took me to my great aunts. We sat in the parking lot and they sang for me and we talked about West Virginia and I am not a good judge of character, obviously. So what year would that have been? Well, I was like, it was right before the murders. I do believe it was 1970. Might have well, been. Actually, the murders took place in 69. So it would have 69, been. Yes, 69. And that was June of 69. And literally, the murders happened about within the, within a month because they came back with all the girls looking for me at my great aunt's and scared her half to death. And she called her brother, my grandfather in West Virginia and said, your granddaughter was hanging out with some really scary people. And then the murders happened like the next day. So I'm really, really glad they didn't kill my great aunt. Well, what a strange story. And interesting that you should be a couple years later in uh, uh, this disturbing movie, given what, uh, what association you had briefly there. Interesting well, story. Well, I got that because I played the part in a play in New York killing Sharon Tate for a year. And what, oh yeah, that's right, because you played Susan Atkins in that yes. role. Yes, yes. Did, uh, did either of you see the last Tarantino movie? I loved it, I loved it. 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 I thought growing I, up, I, in LA, yeah. Go ahead, Mark. I'm sorry. No, I was going to say I loved it because the entire premise of the movie is based on, based on that the, that two word key that that writers carry around with, and that's the ability to just say what if, you know, what if they went to the wrong house? You know, it's like <laughs> it fucking just got me. It just 
I just love that. I did, you know, hats off to, to Tarantino for that one. That surprised me. And I'm so proud of the pit bull that saved everybody. And it was so good. <laughs> well, and I lived in that house. So I, I, I wanted to see the movie to see how true to life it was. And it was fairly true to life. Now, now what house were you living in? The house where Sharon Tate was murdered. I came back uh, 10 years later with John Savage or eight years later. And that was his manager, Rudy Altabelli, owned that house. He was in Italy. And John and I moved into the main house. And when Rudy came back, we moved to the back house. But he didn't tell me what house that was. And I loved that house. And Okay. Wow. What a strange story. Well, you know, the, the, Tarant the Tarantino movie for me, what was amazing about having grown up in L.A., and lived there in 69, the, the, every detail from the KHJ radio signature, little oh, radio yeah. things, and, and the way that Hollywood looked, uh, the TV shows, it was just an amazing thing. So- um, And Brad, Pitt, Brad, Brad Pitt's characterization of, stunt, of that stuntman was about as spot on as you could get. You know, his, his personality was the personality of every stuntman I've ever known. So let's let's get into uh, what some people argue is one of the more disturbing movies of the 70s. Uh, Jer Jer Jeremy, uh, you mentioned that you had done a play in New York uh, about Sharon Tate, and you're saying that's how you came to the attention of Mr. Craven? Yes. And also Fred Perna, Fred Lincoln, whatever name he used, um, he worked on the answering service back in the 70s we didn't have cell phones we didn't have answering machines we had to go to a pay phone and call to find out if you had an audition or whatever we spent our lives in pay phones and fred was the guy that would answer on our service mark did you have fred also no i got there another way uh, okay so freddie sent me on that audition and Fred, of course, for the That's listeners, so played the character of Weasel in the movie. He's the guy with the knife. He's always scratching his nose with his knife, which I thought was kind of creepy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so let me ask you. So, so was a good guy. Uh, say again, Mark. I said I was about to say, uh, Freddie was a good guy, and and doesn't get the credit for his contribution. Uh, to last house that he deserves. So can you a little elaborate a little bit on that? What, 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 yeah, what? yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, I'll go back to how you referred to Wes a few seconds ago. You referred to him as Mr. Craven, right? Correct. Which, out of respect, obviously, right? But you got to put it in our perspective, right? He wasn't Mr. Craven back then. He was just this tall, skinny, blonde-haired hippie named Wes. And, <laughs> and uh, um, you know, who had been editing some porn movies for uh, a, a, a short, not so skinny uh, fellow named Sean, uh, uh, who would produce. You know, so it, you have to put it in our context, right? So, so um, that's that's all I was going to say. It just, I had no idea who he was. Right. So right. let me so let me ask the question, Jeremy. So, um, you uh, so somebody saw you in the play, and then you, you were brought to Mr. Uh, Craven's or West's attention. What right. do you, 
what do you remember about reading the script for the first time? What was your reaction to the show? I was horrified. I It said that I cut her tits off and ate them. And I remember saying, I can't possibly do that. My parents will never speak to me again in West Virginia. And he said, well, don't worry about that. We're gonna, you don't have to do that. But most of everything else was in the script. I did read that, uh, that um, there were a number of, of pornographic sex scenes that were cut. I guess the movie was originally conceived, at least from what I read, was more pornographic than it became. How do you feel about that, Mark? What was your first reaction? Well, you know, I, I, I'm right with Jeremy. What happened, what, as I recall, um, there was that first script, the one that, that you guys are, are talking about, the one that was pornographic and, you know, the, the one that was more along the lines of, of one of the original titles, which was Sex Crime of the Century, right? So mm -hmm. it was more, more along, along those lines. I and, never read the porno one. Yeah, so then after we all were cast uh, in the film, we, we had we got together with Wes and Sean and everything. We said, look, we'll do, don't want to do this weird thing, right? Come on, let's 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 do something else. And Wes, to his credit, went to work on it and and produced the draft of what became the final of of Last House. So it, it was in in some ways it was all Wes's vision, and in some ways it was very collaborative. Well, that was very. Um very uh, strategic of you, Mark, to raise that point. I mean, obviously, some filmmakers will tell you to go jump in a lake when you have creative thoughts like that. Which, uh, well, obviously, it was all of us. Yeah, it was all of us. Because right? Wes didn't have a direct either. I mean, we were all left to our own selves to figure out to make our characters, to find our makeup, find our costumes, decide who we were. Don't you agree, Mark? Yeah. Hundred percent. That that's again. You know, uh, uh, we talk about this movie in in a much different and unique perspective, and we talk about the people who were involved in it with, through that same lens. So what what Jeremy was just saying, Wes wasn't Wes the director then. Wes was a guy <laughs> named Wes who had edited some porn movies. <laughs> and got these guys from Boston to put up $93,000 to make a shitbag second feature for a drive-in, for their drive-ins. That was the reality. Everything else just fucking happened, right? <laughs> Everything else after that, we went there with obviously the best intentions because we were excited. We were all excited we were doing this. And there was a unique connection between uh, uh, Jeremy, David, Freddie, and, and me. The baddies, and, we were the baddies. And what, if you look at the film, what we were able to do without even knowing it or trying to do it was, we created the illusion that these four people had been together before. In other words, as goofy and as bizarre as we were, we looked like we belonged together. <laughs> and. That was that's a hard thing to to pull off because you know you can't you can't do it if you try and if you over try then it looks like shit too so it just happens it's that lightning in a bottle thing I mean why fifty years later are people still fucking talking about this so so the you know the the proof is in the history 
So, so it was, it yeah. was, oh, sorry, I'm sorry, Steve, please. No, no, I was just going to say, uh, ha had either of you been in a film before or was this both of your debuts? It was my first. I was in a film as a child. But no I had done a lot of stuff. Uh, <laughs> no, I Jeremy, go ahead. No, I mean, I, I did win some state speech contest. I got to be in a Bell Telephone movie when I was in fifth grade. And my mother told me, don't tell anybody because they'll be jealous and you'll have no friends. So I didn't tell anybody. And uh, it, they showed it at my school and I had a nude scene in the bathtub. I was like horrified. Wow. I mean, how I, I was, I'm sorry. Uh, Jeremy, how old were you in that little bell telephone thing? Fifth grade, um, 10. 10 years I old was, and you had a yeah. new scene? <laughs> well, I was, okay, I, it, was a, it was a bell telephone movie. They used to make them for schools. And I was playing a really poor, poor, poor girl with my mother and we were eating dog food. And suddenly the welfare people came through the door and I'm eating dog food with my mother and they take me away to an orphanage and then it cuts to them cleaning me up. I'm in a bathtub and I'm naked. Wow, and that sounds pretty racy for a bell telephone story. <laughs> it's really we, racy. We didn't, we didn't get bell telephone stories like that on the West Coast. Uh, <laughs> this was West Virginia. So let me let me ask you guys a question. Um, given that this is a tiny little budgeted movie with a first time director, the material seems very suspect. What right. what was you, uh, I'll go with Jeremy first. What was your motivation to do this? What what money? I, we didn't make much, but it was I was extremely poor in New York City, and they I think I got four hundred and fifty dollars to do this movie, and um, that was that's why I did it. And also, it was a chance to be in something. I mean, it's so hard when you don't know any you know when you're nobody in New York City and you finally get, you don't get to pick what you want to be in. What about you, Mark? Well, I amplify what Jeremy said. Uh, just, you know, you're 20 years old. You're an actor going around, like she said, with pockets full of dimes so you can check pay phones to call anonymous message services to see where you don't have to go in the next 10 minutes. You know, it's like, and you go around and, and, and you're, you tell yourself you're an actor. Now I had done before last house, I was, I had done some theater and also was doing stand up and part of somebody's act, another comedian's act where I had just like finished like 150 club dates in the Catskill mountains, ending up with two weeks at the Copacabana. So I wasn't a stranger to performing right i wasn't i wasn't I, w I had never done a movie before but i was like anxious to learn you know like i it was it, it just seemed like an incredible experience no matter what right right and you came from comedy because you were a comedian correct yeah 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 doing stand-up right i came from a soap opera i was playing a dumb nurse on the doctors so you had television experience. You just this was just your first movie, right? But they weren't very happy over at NBC that I when this movie came out. <laughs> so let's talk about um, some of the productions. Uh, one of the things you read a lot about when when hearing about this movie is um, 
the young lady who plays um, the first the the, the 17-year-old who um, you know right. captured Sandra Sandra Peabody who plays Peabody, Mary yeah. she it said it says that from the get-go she was somewhat traumatized by the experience and that it wasn't helped by the fact that David Hess, who played Krug, your father in the picture, Mark, was not very friendly off camera, kind of staying in character. Do either of you guys remember any of that as being true? Did you? Yes, they hated us. Those girls wouldn't come near. They hated me. They hated David. I don't really remember David's. David just looks so frightening. Um, David, this was like, David was like a bull in the China shop of life, okay? Um, he he was a really good guy who had some anger issues, but he he, he was a loyal wonder. We were friends forever. Forever. And, um, forever. You know, just friends forever. And and um, he had never done a movie before, but he was very methodical. So he he decided that he was going to be crude 24 seven. <laughs> that he that David David wasn't coming back until West yelled picture rap, right? So so he was crude. Now he and I had established a, a nice friendship, so I kind of just fucking laughed at this, right? And and uh went along with it because what the hell, who cares? And, but he was crude, you know, all the time. And Sandra, I remember not really liking that. You know, she wanted a break. You know, I don't understandably. She wanted a break from Krug when they weren't filming, but David, in his desire to be, you know, a method actor, uh, carried it to to that extreme. That that sounds uh, quite plausible and understandable. Um, where were you filming? I mean, the, obviously, this is a rural area. Where was this? Westport, Connecticut. Yeah, the exteriors, like say, uh, uh, Jeremy just said, were little different locations around Westport, Connecticut. And then the interiors, that was Sean's mother's house. And we had to stay there too, although I didn't. I went home to New York City every night. And we also shot in Lower East, the uh, east side of New York. Lower East Side. Kidnapped yeah. those girls. I didn't kidnap anyone. You kidnapped them. Ah, uh, they were looking for weed. Nope. <laughs> I conned I conned them, but I didn't kidnap them. My friend said to me, they had to die because they bought some weed. Uh, but Mark so Jr. Jr. invites them upstairs. You you're complicit, man. And you I knew, am. Mark. You nope. knew you weren't gonna give them weed. You were gonna you were complicit. I was controlled by Krug and completely complicit. Absolutely, signature of my character. What doomed the character? But I mean, um, what's What's interesting about your character, Mark, is that uh, Junior spends most of the movie just kind of uncomfortable, uh, like a like a, a cat just tied to a wall. It just seems like you you really got it across that this is not what you wanted to be doing. Right. In fact, yeah. part of my part of my enjoyment of the movie was this great hope that your character would help the girls get away at some point. So what happens is it creates dramatic tension. So I'm waiting and I'm waiting and I'm waiting. And unfortunately, uh, 
Uh, that didn't happen. But wait a minute, in the remake, Mark, your character lived. Yeah, the remake was a piece of shit. I agree. <laughs> I didn't see it. Now, uh, what about, um, Jeremy, what about you? What did, what did you uh, want to bring to the table? I mean, I think your character is introduced as a woman who's just beaten, beaten a dog to death. So you're obviously, in real life, you're a tremendous dog lover and animal lover, but you're right. portrayed as someone who's not very friendly to animals. Well, you know, I didn't know that till I saw the movie. They added that. I didn't know that I was supposed to have kicked a German shepherd to death. Um, <laughs> yes, I have spent the last couple decades rescuing dogs <laughs> and all animals. And I quit eating meat after that scene where we di I disemboweled that girl because they cut for lunch and it was sausages. And uh, that was too much for me. I don't eat meat. Um, I mean, yeah, were, there, were there days where, um, you know, I, I've worked on films, I've produced films, I've, I was a publicist on, you know, about 40 different films. I, I know what set life is like, but this was pretty intense filmmaking. Um, did you feel the intensity or was there a, I mean, you're saying that David was tough on everybody. But would you say that there was a certain uh, lightness ever on the set or were you guys? No, no, no. <laughs> it wasn't light. Did you think it was light, Mark? Well, I looked at, look, I was extraordinarily grateful to have the job and to be doing what we were doing. So I looked at everything through that, through that, you know, lens that that was that was how I viewed everything. So when I remember things, look, nobody wants to eat chicken for three fucking meals a day, for, you know, you know, fried chicken. But that's what Sean gave us. Right. And nobody <laughs> went, you know, people wanted to stay in better places and what. But that's what we had. And it was. I only say that whatever the experience was. I think it served mostly all of us rather well. So I, I look back at it fondly and don't don't think it was anything but a lot of fun and, and a learning and, and the most extraordinary learning experience ever. We did have fun, except I caught poison ivy the first day we shot in West Point, uh, Westport. I was covered in poison ivy from head to toe. And for the rest of the show, I was just going crazy. <laughs> I don't think any of us, the baddies, took Hess seriously. I know I didn't. I know you didn't, Jeremy. No, I, I loved him. I loved him to the day he died. Yeah, and so, so I, I think all the only person who was affected by that I remember who was affected by Hess's nonsense was Sandra, and and I feel sorry for her because you know I've I've, I've seen Hess. Uh, at his uh, uh, or worst, and it's not fun to be on the on the receiving end of that, and especially if you don't know somebody, and you know when you don't know somebody, you don't trust them, so you think they could really go off and at any second. So it for, through you know from her point of view, it must not have been for any comfortable. I believe Jeremy, you correct me if I'm wrong. Didn't she like uh, leave, and Freddie had to go after her? I think I know I left one time when we were shooting the bed scenes upstairs in that house because I had to go do that play 
and Wes wouldn't let me leave. And I stomped out of the house and got in that little car I had. And, and uh, Wes came out there and ordered me back into the house. And like a idiot, I just turned around and went right back in, you know, I mean, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about Wes Craven. Um, obviously, Wes Craven became a major deal later on with all of his horror materials. What What are your memories of Wes? Did he did Did he seem to know what he was doing? I had no idea if he knew what he was doing. He was very close to the two girls. I did not feel close to him at all. Um, I I don't know if he knew what he was doing. What about you, Mark? Well, I'm, I could, I'll, I'll answer that in a couple of different ways. I, I, of course, he didn't know what he was doing as a director. Uh, it was his first movie after only editing a couple of movies. However, he had an innate storytelling sense and a creative mission. So he knew what he wanted. And having edited a bunch of stuff, he knew how it would, he knew how he wanted to put it together. What Jeremy said earlier on was that we improved a lot of stuff and we deviated from the script at times in the West. If it worked for him, it was okay. He didn't, you know, he, he wasn't uh, uh, strict about that. If there's something that we had that was better then then it worked, you know, so, but, but, you know, history proves he was the real deal because, you know, uh, uh, he had an extraordinary career. Which, so, uh, which, which was recognized by some of the critics. I mean, I was reading Roger Ebert's review and Roger Ebert gave this movie three and a half out of four stars. He, he thought it was but, very, very disturbing, which is pretty amazing. Were you guys, um, were you, were you guys uh, up on what the critics or how they were responding to the film when it was released? Oh yeah, yes. what, what happened? Yes, go ahead, go ahead Jeremy. No, go ahead. We, suddenly it was number one. We were everywhere. We were, I had a knife in my hand and we were stabbing people all over New York City, every subway, every bus, every theater. It was showing everywhere. Was here's what happened. Here's, here's, here's the, the timeline on that. So Last House gets made for $93,000 funded by a, a company in Boston called Hallmark Releasing. And they owned a chain of drive-ins and they made Last House to be uh, 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 one or two of a double feature that they wanted to show on weekends, like a scary slasher date night kind of program. So we make the movie and they, it gets released and Sean gets about 30 prints made to give to the guys in Boston. So they get the prints and they put it in their theaters and, you know, a little months six weeks go by and it's doing every because of the kind of movie it is for weekends it's happening every week so it's not running out of steam it's just happening every weekend somehow roger eber gets a hold of of, of a print he screens it and writes a three and a half out of four star review the very next day sean cunningham gets an order for a thousand prints <laughs> and i happen to be in his office and he's running around on different phones trying to call this lab and that lab. Can you get me a hundred? Can you get me 10? He's got an order for a thousand prints. And what, what Jeremy said, hundred percent correct. It, it went from obscurity to being first in the top 10 
in the United States. And she, Jeremy swears it, it became it went to number, number one, one for a moment. And I'll go and I'll go along with that because it makes all of us look better. But but um, you know, it, it's so fucking bizarre that it went. It, we were we watched it happen. The 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 transition. It was just amazing. It went to Charleston, West Virginia. My parents went to see it and didn't talk to me for two years. <laughs> yeah, it went to it went to Pittsburgh, and uh, the, they they sent me there. The company sent me there to do publicity. And girls from my high school class were just like coming at me left and right. And I'm wow, this is what a career choice I made. And, <laughs> and, you know, and look out. Yeah, for about two, three weeks, this, this, you know, it was like a young movie star. I mean, it was fucking great. Well, it's interesting. You know, they all—they're uh, always talking about the '70s being a real transition from old-style Hollywood. The studios had, you know, they—they're all their contract players were gone. Everybody was independent. This is the time of the new filmmakers: the Peter Bogdanovichs, yes. the Bob Rafelsons. Coppola. Yeah, I'm sorry, Mark. I'm saying independent filmmaking had its birth then in all in mostly all genres. Right, exactly. So uh, this movie certainly was part of that wave of, and I, I think it's pointed out it's still two years before Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So they stole that from us. I'm sure of it. That idea, the yeah, chainsaw well, part. There you go. There you go. So, um, did both of you think, uh, I mean, tell, tell me a little bit about post uh, Last House on the Left. Uh, what did you get involved in? Let's go with you first, Jeremy. Um, I, my career never really went anywhere. And I didn't want to do a horror film again. And I wound up just getting into production at, at NBC in New York and then NBC in LA and then CBS. And then I married Richard Dreyfus, and I told him he could never see this movie. I had an agreement with him. I had an agreement with Steven Spielberg also that neither of them would ever, ever, ever. And then I found out that they both owned a copy. <laughs> so, there you are. Um, I was a civilian to them, and that was fine with me. Jeremy, how did you meet Richard? Uh, where did you meet? Did you meet in Hollywood? Yes, I met him with Rudy Altabelli, the John Savage and I, and um, we were we were at Valerie Harper. We were having dinner, and Richard walked in with Susan Onspock to this restaurant, and he walked straight towards our table, and he introduced himself to John. He said, "John, I'm Richard Dreyfus. Uh, I saw you in American Buffalo on Broadway. I think you're great." And John goes, "Uh, uh, uh." and he slid under the table and then he just looked up and with his little finger, he goes, I think you're great too. And then he slid completely under the table. Richard walked back to his table. I pulled John up and he said it was Marlon Brando speaking to an extra. And so a couple years later, I meet Richard at a party. He walks into a party and I just took the chance. I went over and told him uh, what John said. I love that line. And then he said, what do you want to do with your career? And I said, nothing. I want to get married. He said, me too. Let's get married. So I went over and told my date, I'm going to marry Richard Dreyfus." And the guy said, oh, well, you're crazy. You're completely nuts and made me leave. But I sneaked my phone number to Richard and we were engaged a week later. 
And then we had this huge wedding at Warner Brothers and we have three children and we did not know each other. Absolutely did not, did not know each other. Are, are any of your kids in the business? They're all writers. And in fact, our daughter just wrote a book, Meme Wars, and she's in New York City right now doing a book signing. And Richard just finished a book today uh, that's coming out. It's got a very long title. It's, if you want to hear it, I'll say it. But it's One Thought Scares Me. We teach our children what we wish them to know. We don't teach our children what we don't wish them to know. That's the title of the book. But um, he's worked on that for a long time. It's about civics and how... I, 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 I got it. I got a chance to work with him once uh, in the late 90s. He came over to Showtime and we had a little program uh, called Directed By. And he wow. got a chance to direct a short film for Showtime. I remember going out and I completely blew it because uh, we were having a discussion during the pre-production and I went up to him and we were, I was making a car reference, forgetting that... Um, that the car in American Graffiti is a white T-bird, but I, right? I called it a, I, I referred to it as a pink Corvette. So I was completely <laughs> out of You fucking angelined him. That's what you did. You, you angelined him. I angelined him, exactly, exactly. Uh, <laughs> by the way, I, I sat next to Angeline at a Hollywood Chamber of Commerce event once, and it was a little creepy. I wasn't sure if she was 40, 60, or 90. Was she a real person? She was. A yeah, real yeah, person. yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. She's, yeah. she's uh, those if billboards. You live in L.A. Yeah. If you live in L.A. long enough, eventually you she pulls up beside you in, in oh. on a freeway or something. It's oh just, my God. So, Mark, tell, tell us a little bit about you post Last House on the Left. Okay, so um, Last House on the Left. Uh, um, you know, fulfilled uh, uh, several wishes for me. One of which was, you know, to have that kind of celebrity where girls are coming after you. And I got that to experience that for about three weeks, you know, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, but I had it right. So, so, um, you know, uh, three weeks, I was back to being uh, an out of work actor and uh with nothing going on so i went on some commercial auditions and i did a couple of commercials and still working on stand-up still still you know going to the little clubs and doing that and uh you know i drove a cab for a while and went on auditions and i did i did uh, uh, uh commercials for a guy named lee lacy remember the mean joe green coca-cola commercial sure uh, lee lacy was yeah, a baseball a player well, no, that's Lee Lacey, not N. Lee Lacey. N. Lee oh. Lacey was uh, a commercial director. Oh, okay. And uh, we became friends. He had an office on, in the 60s uh, near Lexington Avenue. So um, one of the things was that, that when Last House went away, so did this kind of mojo that I had with women. And that was very depressing. <laughs> uh, uh, because, you know, it was, it was because I worked, you know, a little bit to get there and I got it and then it went away. And so I, I had to come up with something else. One night I'm at a party and I hear a guy who looks, you know, no different than me, kind of average looking guy. And he's talking to a beautiful woman and uh, uh, he's saying things like, um, 
uh, well, yeah, I'm, I'm about to uh, begin the second act. Um, and I got to hurry. My agent in Los Angeles needs the script and the studio. I don't know. It's just, this girl's like wrapped up. And this guy is like, uh, you know, telling her he's a writer and he's got a deal and an agent. And she's completely, they end up leaving together. So I think to myself, I can do that. I, I could tell girls I'm a writer. So I, I bought a bunch of books uh, on writing, TV writing and film writing. And I read them and I got all the buzzwords, started a rap, you know, that uh, I was a writer working on a script and, you know, just bullshit. And uh, one day I'm, and it's working. So one day I'm in Lee's office and uh, uh, I'm in his waiting room at, for a commercial and I'm doing my thing and I have a girl listening and enjoying it and, you know, enthusiastic. And I get a tap on my shoulder and it's him. And he said to me, uh, hey, listen, uh, I don't want to interrupt you, but, you know, when you finish that script, I'd like to see it. I have an agent at William Morris in Los Angeles. Uh, um, I'll send it to him. So I take him aside and I say, look, um, I got to be honest with you, man. I'm not really writing anything. I'm just doing it to get girls. <laughs> and, and, he, and Lee said to me, is it working? I said, yeah, oh, all the, all the time. He said, then, yeah, you know, I like you, but you're an idiot. And I said, well, what do you mean? And, and he said, well, look, if you can get women to drop their pants because of something that you're saying to them, take those same words and put them down on a page and write that script. And, and you know, me being who I was, maybe still am, I, I said, uh, gee, I really hadn't thought of it that way. And uh, so I did, I wrote it. I wrote the script, took me like a, you know, nine months, eight months, because I didn't know what I was doing. Gave it to him. And about a month after I gave it to him, he called me up and he said, hey, you're moving to Los Angeles. My agent just sold this to NBC. And that's how I became a writer. So that, that was the big post last house thing that happened to me. And what, what did that become? That became a lesson in television. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> that, that, that's no, I listen, hear me out. Uh, um, I get moved to Los Angeles. The day I land in Los Angeles, I have uh, um, a car, an apartment, money in the bank, an office, and William Morris as my agent. This is what I. On the day the wheels landed, this is this no none of that I you know struggling or anything. I landed; it was all in my pocket. So so um, what happened was uh, I did a couple of rewrites and got paid a little more money. And then here comes the lesson in television: uh, the regime at NBC changed, and the lesson was when that happens, the new people coming in shit can. 99% of everything that the old regime uh, was doing because they want their own stuff. That's where they're going to put their development money. And that's what happened to my movie. It just, they, I was bought and paid for and they just said, nope, off the schedule now. So, but I still had William Morris as, as an agent and, you know, that led to a lot of work. So, and it was, it, it all works it was, out. It was a TV movie and not a television series. Yes. TV movie uh, 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 on NBC. 
And what yeah, was they your, sold it to NBC. What was your, what was your working title? Uh, it was called Snakes. It was a the the premise was um, uh, somebody's trying to smuggle a van load of venomous snakes into New York City, and it has a uh, an accident in Central Park, going through the park, and the snakes get loose in the middle of a sun, sunny summer day. So, got it. That was uh, the it's a slithering Sharknado. Yeah, but remember, this is now 1975 when I sell this. Got it. So it's way ahead of its time. Yeah. Terrific. Yeah. terrific. So now, now um, that's that. What I was going to say to both you and Jeremy is, the last house on left is is not your first thought is that it's not a movie that's good for society. It's horrific, it's violent, it's, it seems exploitative, but it's also what we call these days a cautionary tale because perhaps if a young woman sees this movie and is offered the opportunity to buy some drugs from a guy who offers to escort her up to his apartment, maybe she won't go. So tell, tell me how you feel about the the positives of this movie. Are there positives? I'm okay. not sure there are any positives. Well, I, you know, 20 years ago, I would have a, an answer in line with that right now, 25 years ago. But I, I will tell you that one of the elements that makes this film such a cross-generational project, you know, that it goes from, because I've been to enough conventions and been approached and signed, auto, signed autographs for enough people of enough different age groups to know uh, uh, that the film gets handed off from parent to child for the very reasons that you mentioned, Steve. And it has become a cautionary tale. And it, it, I don't know, I'm sure you may know this, West adapted it from Ingmar Bergman's The Virgin Spring, which was a cautionary tale taken from a 12th century uh, uh, Swedish folk story. So yes, it's exactly what it is. I look at it a little differently now. I, I think it's a cautionary tale, but I, I the dinner scene uh, uh, is what led me to the belief that what the film is really about is it's a skirmish in, in uh, uh, Class warfare. That that's the scene to me that that nails that because of the way it was shot and angles and what West featured. It's also a revenge tale because um, when yeah. uh, Mary Mary's parents find out who you guys really are, it becomes a revenge tale as well. It's interesting. Um, lately, we've had movies like Taken which obviously is a great vehicle for Liam Neeson where, you know, two girls go to Paris and, and do kind of what the girls in the last house on the left are. They're trying to be a little, you know, cavalier and they end up paying for it and get captured by these, uh, these fiendish traffickers and also a way of letting people know that maybe you shouldn't, you know, maybe you shouldn't doing things. Like, I mean, it's interesting. Movies reach us in so many different ways and uh, <clears throat> but it wasn't just roger ebert who extolled the virtues of this movie i think you also got a yeah. an interesting review from pauline kale who's like the dean of yeah. film criticism wow yeah, that, we were 
we, this is, here, here's the thing. We were charmed, right? It was charmed. It was Wes Craven's, somebody was, somebody, I was doing a podcast the other day and somebody made a comparison to me and uh, about Last House. He said, yeah, it was one of those films like, you know, that like, like uh, Blair Witch Project. It was made for little money. I said, well, no, it was a little different than Blair Witch Project. And he said, no, no, no. I think they're very similar that, you know, the, they had themes of, you know, chaos and this. I said, let me ask you a question. Who directed Blair Witch? And he couldn't come up with the name. And I said, who directed Last House? He said, oh, Wes Craven. I said, see, they're different films. <laughs> I, I actually refer to uh, the Blair Witch Project as the pet rock of movies. I, mean, yeah, I agree with you. <laughs> that That's movie, a good one. I love it. Yeah, that movie was all about the marketing. That was like the first movie that used social media up, up the yin-yang. And everybody heard about this strange, maybe true story of the, what happened in the, in the forest. And all of a sudden... And I think it, it spawned like 10,000 kids in cabin movies. It was just, uh, you know, the marketing yeah. was brilliant for that. And it sounds like uh, both Wes and Sean Cunningham, who were obviously associated with major horror series later on with Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street, both of them knew what they were doing from the marketing point of view once they were given the, the thought that we need a thousand prints. And uh, yeah. Keep repeating. It's only a movie. That was brilliant. <laughs> yeah, and that was the first. And they had television ads for Last House, and I think that was one of the first times that a film did that kind of ad. You know, like a real commercial. So you know, you yeah. hear stories over the years that when movies blast out and make tons of money, the filmmakers reach back to their cast and give them a little piece of the action. I take it that wasn't the case here. Never, no. Yeah, but you know, there's nothing anybody can do about that and who cares, it's water under the bridge. Um, I think we each got $1,000 like 20 years yes, later, remember? Yeah, uh, I, wouldn't, I, I wouldn't sweat that. It's, it's an interesting, look, it's an interesting way to pay those dues it, it you know is to to have a small part in a film that's part of american film history right and then actually the film was uh, was it the american film institute or so uh, they recognized no, they, the museum of museum of modern art their their museum of modern <laughs> a few art. weeks ago <laughs> yeah that's yeah, in late august we were, yeah we were we were part of an exhibition at the museum of modern art we've gone from like freddie and uh, uh, Jeremy and David Hess and I looking at each other outside of a Filmways post house uh, 50 some years ago going, no one's ever going to come and see this piece of shit. So, uh, <laughs> <you know. laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, the museum to being an exhibit in the museum of modern art. So, you know, that's a, that's of all the things that, that happened to last house. That's a thing that just has just floored me. Like I, I make myself laugh when I just re I repeat that to myself because who that is the most unfucking believable thing ever. I want to say that our our uh, fans are some of the most wonderful people. 
And I remember back yeah. in my twenties, I was scared of anybody that would be a fan of Sadie. I thought they must be a serial killer. But in fact, through these shows that we've done, Mark, I've learned that some of the, they're the nicest people and lots of people just love horror. And I am still a little concerned. I'm gonna give you guys the last few minutes just to talk a little bit about what you'd like to talk about about your lives now to reach out to people. Uh, Mark, why don't you go first and tell people uh, what you would like to tell them about your current life? Is there anything you wanna promote? Um. Well, I do stand up occasionally, uh, and, but most of my, my efforts now are going into, I'm writing a book uh, about my life and my career, uh, writing a fictionalized version of it and then kind of unfictionalizing it. But um, yeah, it's called, uh, right now I'm calling it uh, Dumb Effing Luck. Luck. That's a good title. That That's should get some attention. Dumb Effing Luck. Yeah, because that's basically what my life has been. It's all, you know, been interesting. Um, yeah, I'm just on the other side of the creek enjoying my life with my wife and my grown kids and uh, my ex-wife and just kind of enjoying it. That's about it. Thank you for that. And what about you, Jeremy? I'm just grateful to be alive and I believe in volunteer work. I believe in just being good, doing the best I can be the best person I can be uh, without causing any harm. Um, I also love animals and have devoted the last 20 years to trying to rescue animals or help them or foster them. And uh, yeah, just be grateful to be alive. Grateful for every, nothing's Nothing's given to us, nothing's promised. So just enjoy everything, enjoy the ride. We're just passing through. Well, it's been delightful hearing your stories, your, your stories about working on this legendary horror film. And uh, I, 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 I found it fascinating to hear each of your takes on how this all played out. Uh, everyone, um, I'm Steve Rubin, your host of Saturday Night at the Movies. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury, who's always very helpful with these broadcasts. We're on the Lock 22 Network. Jeremy and Mark, thank you so much for being a part of our show and sharing with us a piece of important film history. Thank, oh, thank you. you for having me. Thank you both. Thank you for having me. You're quite welcome. And um, 